if you get something from today's stand-up tragedy episode and you live in London, you should come along on Monday to the Hackney Picture House where Spark London, the true storytelling night that I'm involved with, is teaming up with Mind Haringey for a night dedicated to stories about mental health. So there's going to be some storytellers who've been working on their stories with Spark and they're going to tell their stories. I'm going to tell a story as well. And there's also going to be an open mic part of the show. So if you have a story that you would like to tell, please come and tell your story. All of the proceeds go towards Mind. The tickets are £7. Doors open at 7.30. It's Monday the 1st of December. And you can find more about that at www.sparklondon.com Welcome to the Stand Up Tragedy Podcast. My name's Dave and I'm your host. Stand Up Tragedy is a live show and podcast that's been running for three years now and we've recorded loads and loads of tragic variety because what we do is we get people to come along to the show and stand up and do tragedy and we get people from a variety of different parts of the arts we've got comedians storytellers musicians spoken word artists and more and they come together to look at the sadder things in life with some laughs as well as some tears and we're taking a break from our live shows until February 2015. So to fill in the gap on the podcast, we're putting together some special episodes that really celebrate what we think Stand Up Tragedy is about and showcase some of the amazing performances that we've got over the last few years. Today's episode is Selected Tragedy Volume 2, The Tragedy inside. Since starting Stand Up Tragedy, it's been really interesting to me as somebody who myself experiences mental health issues and has had some personal tragedy whilst I was growing up, that Stand Up Tragedy has become a place where that kind of content is welcome and heard. I didn't expect that to happen when I started it necessarily. That wasn't in mind when I set up Stand Up Tragedy. But because of the fact that some of the, the people I've been booking for the nights have been true storytellers, and if you're going to tell true stories of tragedy, then there's two things that are going to happen. One is that they are going to touch on real experiences that happen to the person telling it. And the second is that they are alive they have survived so their tragedy will not be traditional tragedy the hero will not pass away unless it's a a story and we've had many of them too about personal bereavement where the the hero is is somebody else we've had lots of people talking about their their parents or loved ones passing away but the nature of a true story meaning that the person telling it is still alive has meant that people have dug into their own tragic thoughts if you like their own personal struggles and tragedies that have affected them and in the kind of way that that tragedy is supposed to one of the things that that talking about dark things does is it is it offers us catharsis so 
traditionally an audience watched a tragedy happen and then there was a kind of ending where, where a chorus would sum it up and the idea was that we would experience some kind of collective communal expunging of, of the darker things and collective knowledge as well coming together to learn something about humanity about society and in the case of stand-up tragedy about the individual as i mentioned i i have anxiety and depression and i struggle with it you know regularly i'm certainly making no claims and, and, and never will that I I have the worst kind of mental health issues. I I can cope. I am, for better or worse, a coper, and and that makes me lucky in some ways. But I've experienced mental health issues for for quite some time. I've come to terms with the fact that I've experienced mental health issues for less time than that. Maybe for the last five years or so I've properly understood this and sought direct help and and, and worked on my myself in a in an active way to try and deal with these negative thoughts and one of the ways that you deal with negative thoughts is to talk about them and one of the ways that we deal with negative thoughts collectively is to make art about them I think When, when we think of tragedy we don't necessarily think of depression of anxiety of these kind of more modern concepts than where tragedy comes from but that said depression has been with us for a long time when I think of how I feel in my most depressed states I think that 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 Shakespeare pretty much summed it up in Macbeth uh, when he said Tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow creeps in this petty pace from day to day to the last syllable of recorded time. And all our yesterdays have lighted fools the way to dusty death. Out, out, brief candle. Life's but a walking shadow, a poor player that struts and frets his hour upon the stage and then is heard no more. It is a tale told by an idiot full of sound and fury, signifying nothing. And when I'm at my most depressed, that is pretty much how I see the world, as signifying nothing, as being meaningless, as being endless and never kind of ending, can't get out of it. And I guess that's also about having suicidal thoughts. And I should say at this stage, if it wasn't clear, the content note for this episode is most definitely mental health. This episode is going to deal with suicide. It's going to deal with depression. It's going to deal with emotional upheaval. And if you're somebody like me who experiences those things, then please know that they're coming. Many of us get some solace, get some some care, self-care from the experience of, of listening to what other people feel. And seeing that we're not alone and we're not alone. But, of course, that isn't always going to be appropriate. This might not be the right day for you to hear these stories. So come back later or don't come back at all. So, yeah, tragedy and mental health. I didn't realise that they were connected. But at Stand Up Tragedy, they really are. There's always something that touches on these on these areas at a show. And so... 
this episode today is about that. It's it's highlighting some of the moments where people have been really brave and have got up on stage and talked about their inner lives and inner struggles and tried to find ways of communicating those to a wider audience, communicating isolation, feeling like an idiot, signifying nothing, and yet trying to express that feeling of, of, of that, of 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 communicating these things that we feel shame for having we feel distressed about having but that we know if we talk about them they may help other people like us and they may help us in fact we may get a personal catharsis and the audience may get wider catharsis i didn't ask people to 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 come and tell their their mental health stories they chose to 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 bring these these topics to light and i i think they're really important to listen to and i'm really glad to be able to give them space today so we're going to have two true stories that were told at stand up tragedy and then we're going to end with a story that i told at a different night it's a long form true story that i told for the risk podcast so you can listen to the, all of that show on the risk podcast which is available uh, on itunes and stuff like that so definitely listen to risk it's a, a really good show and it often talks about tragic things and it often talks about mental health issues now the reason i'm using it today and it's not strictly speaking even tragic it touches on some of the tragedy in my life it doesn't really dwell on it is because that that's a story of catharsis it's a story of, of coming out of depression in many ways and the other two stories are very within depression i wanted us to also go to a, a sort of outer part of depression and also it's a it's, it's kind of a more funny story so it'll give you an idea of the kind of balance we go for at stand-up tragedy with laughs as well as tears and sadness but also after you look at the darkness it's it's good to have some light and i may feel like that macbeth soliloquy but sometimes i feel like i feel in the story that you'll hear at the end of today's episode so i'm going to run the three stories back to back the first one is from nina gray the second one is possibly less of a story and more of a kind of on stage analysis or like summing up of himself using some spoken word as well as telling his story is from Anil G. Both of the performances were done during our Edinburgh run in 2014. They both came just to do stand-up tragedy, both of them, and we were really grateful to be able to share them on our stage and on our podcast and I'm really pleased to bring you them together today as a, a package with, like I say, me at the end talking about sex clubs so i'll tell you what content note as well if you don't like hearing stories about sex clubs uh, don't listen to this episode so sit back relax and enjoy the tragedy we have to get up for nina gray I know you were given a content note at the beginning, but you should have it again because I'm not going to do jokes and I'm going to vomit my depression at you. <laughs> so, you know, if you want to, like, take yourself out or put on your iPod, it should be about two songs long. <laughs> Three if it's the Mountain Goats. On the 26th of September last year, I sent my friend Alice a birthday text and she didn't answer. And I thought that would be because we argued the day before. 
and didn't think anything of it really. And on the 27th, I found out she'd been found in her caravan, she'd hanged herself. And that night everyone came round to my house to wail and get drunk. When my friend Libby arrived, her face was so puffy from crying she couldn't see and she had to be led by the hand. And when I touched her, she collapsed into me and said, I can't believe it, it's not true. Because I looked it up later, she was in the first stage of grief, which is denial. And about a bottle and a half of wine later, Martine looked really guilty and said, is anyone else really fucked off at her yet? And nobody left her hanging. This was stage two, which was anger. And everybody sort of piled in with their anger. And then Jenny, with all of the authority of a soon-to-be PhD, said, that's how I know I could never commit suicide. I've seen what it does to the people left behind. And at that point, I left the room. So I didn't see stages three through five. Because I don't know that I won't. Probably at this point I should tell you I'm medicated and in therapy and you don't need to worry. <laughs> um, but the weather in my head, it's really predictable. Every few months I have to trudge through a few weeks of really severe depression. Um, and at this point I know that it's always coming. And I've learned to notice the bite in the air before the fog rolls in. I could probably tell you weeks in advance that I'm due a breakdown, but it's okay, I won't. Mm -hmm. I just watch myself lie on my bed every night and not do anything, and carefully avoid making plans when friends say, you're being really brave about this whole thing. I say, no, I'm not, and I hope that they believe me. Because people are brave when they take risks, but when you know you haven't got much time left and you're promised a crash. It doesn't matter what you do with the last few weeks. It's easy to look brave. When the switch flipped, I was out in town, which is terrible because town is full of people. <laughs> and I felt like I could feel their eyes on me and that they all hated me. And I hated them more and so I ducked into a coffee shop to try and hide, but there was a guy from uni in there, and guys from uni can fuck, can fuck off. Um, <laughs> so I ran out and put my headphones in, and the beats hurt my teeth, but at least they were predictable, and I walked home, and it took longer than usual. And it would have been quicker to take the bus, it would have been 10 minutes, but I'd have had to talk to the driver, and I couldn't say anything. Not even 190, please. And I spent weeks in my room not doing anything because it didn't matter that I was weak with hunger and that my bladder was full and that my room stank. And when the menstrual cramps came along to add some texture to the misery, I didn't take any painkillers because everything's too difficult and I'm not worth anything. And people started to notice something was wrong and they said, this because of Alice. And it felt like a betrayal say no, but it wasn't, not really. And then living was like watching 
an anaesthetised body walked through my life and can see people hug me and tell me they love me and maybe just imagine how it should feel and I can eat and just sort of remember what things taste like. I get caught sometimes. In the rain, I've got my head down and one drop of cold water lands on my neck before my hair starts and after my coat stops. And I shiver because depression is really close to ecstasy. It's just separated off and I can see it through the veil. It's like being lonely in a crowd when what you want is all around you and completely inaccessible. And there is no way out because anything I could possibly do to help myself requires momentum and I haven't got any and motivationally bankrupt. So I'm just trapped and there's no combination of food and coffee and sex and whatever you do and whatever order you do them that can sort of throw up the right hormones that sort of pull me from the numbness. In the end, something has to come from nothing. And it always does. It's just there one morning, like a spark. It's the strength to wash my face and leave the house during daylight hours. And suddenly, everything's really vivid and gorgeous. The red brick terrace houses on my street and the smell from the chip shop. And the tourists along the quayside taking pictures of the bridges and getting shot on by the seagulls. And every lyric of every song means everything. And my beautiful, hilarious friends are beautiful and hilarious. And that's the silver lining to the fog. But it doesn't make it worth it. Nina Gray, everybody. Somebody who doesn't think she's brave, but is incredibly brave. The next tragic act is the penultimate act. I'm very excited about this one. Please give your most tragic, warmest welcome to Anil G. Hello. How are you? I'm okay. Really. I'm fine. Well, up until Charlie called my name anyway, there's no long walk to compose myself for an arrangement of grey and black upon this stage. As I'm standing here, looking at you, looking for acceptance and accepting it can't be there, as I'm trying to coax the words from, my, from their holes with mind's eyes cheese to lure the scurrying mice since all of a sudden my mind's gone. Someone's holding a closing down sale in my brain has emptied that warehouse except for a few tattered lexemes described in the catalogue as slightly foxed. I really need those synapses to fire now, drag engrams of recitations from who knows where, from who cares where, to spark electrical surges, to set an electrical fire, so that I can blaze a lyrical trail and for your entertainment, and so I entertain mental dreams that this was a good idea. But sparks never leap like you want them to, and the fire is out of control, and the arsonist stands back impassive, the sentences are scorched and tales are torched. I'm not going to set this stage on fire except to leave it strewn with ashes or burnt out words. My altar lambs on the pyre of self-confidence. 
In the back of my head, I'll silently tally, missed lines, unteen stumbled words, a rhythm that didn't hold in that stanza. In freefall, a nosedive just sputtering now, in the hopes that there's just enough fuel to bring us to a landing of sorts. Brace yourselves, this may be a bumpy ride. Thank you. Um, a word of, I don't know, caution. This isn't actually the set I had intended to do when I signed up for, um, for this gig, but I wanted to talk to you, particularly in the wake of events of this week um, and the news, the tragic news that we got on Tuesday regarding um, Robin Williams' passing, um, to tell you a personal tale. Um, this is a true story of me in my younger days, and I thought it would help. I kind of needed to tell this, so I hope you will indulge me um, for this and we'll kind of like work around the, the, some of the pieces that I have planned. So, so, picture scene, it's Cambridge, it's 1999, it's winter. Um, it's the second year of um, my uni, and the first year hadn't gone so well. I'd nearly failed my exams, and so I'd been brought before my college master and a, uh, and a panel of like my tutor and, uh, uh, and a couple of other people, uh, senior members of the college, and I had to explain kind of like what went wrong and how I was going to go and fix that and what could what could happen in order to, uh, to do that. And so with all of that, I was feeling really isolated. I hadn't made many friends in my first year. And it's that kind of like feeling of being stuck amongst people who are much more clever than you, feeling more and more like you're an imposter there. And there was this email group that I was part of, old school, well, I say school friends, but as it turns out, they weren't quite so friendly. Um, and we'd been chatting, they messages backwards and forwards until a point came when somebody had somebody messaged and said that they'd come up with this awesome prank, this awesome joke. They'd signed up to a website purporting to offer Russian brides. And they were posing as a wealthy Englishman uh, and was having this conversation with supposedly one of the ladies on there and offering to bring her over and up. Now how true this actually is, as a naive 19 year old I wasn't really going to, I wasn't really questioning that. All it seemed to me was this really wasn't, this really wasn't on. I didn't, I didn't feel comfortable with the way this was going and with the way they were supposedly stringing her along. Um, so back and forth, my messages and mine were the only ones who seemed to be against this course of action. Um, the, the, this so-called joke. And things just started, started spiralling. I started missing lectures, I wasn't feeling good, and it all kind of culminated one day when I sent a message back along the lines of, fine, you can have this joke in peace, you're not going to hear from me anymore. And so that was it. That afternoon was me, two bottles of wine, and as much paracetamol as I could get my hands on. Me sitting there with that on the table, staring at my nemesis. Born of the darkness and a quicksilver kiss, a carnival of emotions clad in shadowy bliss, for moulded with anger and the sting that insistence swears it's all right, with vituperative hiss. As the rage simmers slowly, jammy sweetness glistens, coating the razor edge bite of the crisp, fangs for the memory of the soul's hubris. 
tangs in the memory whose absence you miss. As hate melts on pain which you're loath to dismiss, daubs tarsheen on heart to bring forth a mirror abyss. And a slow burn reflection shows that you need this. Thankfully, there was a knock on the door. Someone from, someone from that email group had actually alerted the college and they sent someone round to check, on, to check up on me. Um, and they sat with me until the doctor came. At that point, I was diagnosed with uh, acute depression. I took two weeks off to try and like, rest myself, work something out. To, and I decided at the end of that two weeks, I was going to come back to uni and, and try and sort, uh, sort out the rest of the year and, and carry on. But I came back, my weight plummeted, I was living on basically three digestives a day and as much coffee as I could drink. I wouldn't eat unless somebody made me a meal or forced me to, to cook something. I still couldn't face a lecture, so I ended up degrading that year. There's a few other bits and pieces uh, along the way, but generally I got into my head that um, my old school was to blame. And, I rent, and I went, when I got back home, I wrote a series of poems that I ended up delivering to, one, to my old teacher at the school. I'm not going to read you one of those because thankfully they're all lost. They were really bad. But it was a case that I couldn't really trust who I was or what I was seeing when I looked in the mirror. He's the me I cannot see, reflected in silver and refracted by glass, reaching out as I pass so he can pilfer a little more data prismatically. He's just as trapped as I am in a white tiled room in sharp edge focus, shard of eye not seeing eye to eye, shard of me caught in vanity, shackled by a pain of pain and yet we reach for each other. He's reaching out, I'm reaching behind that glass divide for keys in Catfield that he can't swallow. He's a hallucination of distorted light, the me I see when I don't trust my eyes, my very own optical illusion, a victim of duality extrusion, self-infliction of funfire thighs, the wrongness I often wish was right. He must really hate me. I mean, I would if I were him. His bastard master with a summoning spell down pat. No words, just a glance to bring him before me. Never thinking what he may want might be doing subjugation by sight, an inalienable right, granted by the laws of optics. My Dwada Signor exercised when in reflective mood, and his eyes have long since glazed over. Now, Fast forward many more years, and through medications that didn't work, and work that I don't really believe in. And about two years ago, I came across this competition to write a kind of time capsule poem. But it wasn't, it wasn't so much like looking back at your past self, it was what would you say to your future self? Now, I didn't end up winning that, but I thought I'd write this final piece and um, recite for you now. It's called Legacies. This is my apology to you. To look upon my works, you would despair. I have not decreed a stately pleasure dome, nor made a castle of my home. I have no treasure vaults of rubies, nor chariot winged or otherwise. I rule no lands except where dice drives policy. Anything you've got, it hasn't come from now, except perhaps an overwrought lexicon, lovingly stuck to the binding, full of the joys of a fantasy currency and a strange definition for what counts as contemporary. Truly a bounty for three decades past. I hope it served you well. But I'm mostly sorry that I haven't managed to find a suitable home for the black dog stray who lolls around, who woke up beside me us one teenage day, a companion most loyal if demanding of frequent exercise, particularly in the lean moments of the year. 
of frequent feeding on faintly wards and knife-borne treat for all that attention in every shadow between the sunbeams. I haven't yet found the strength to send him packing, but I just can't lose him to the feral dark, unleashed and uncounted, intense and incorrigible scamp that he is. I've made him a kennel by my heart, and there he sits and guards, puts me down when it's all too much, my boon companion. So yeah, I know this isn't anything new from your vantage point up there, but I just wanted you to know, in case of dull resignation, I really, really am very sorry. I wish I could have helped you more. I'm almost out of time, <laughs> but there is a happier ending to that, and if you do want to find out more, you can come and grab me afterwards. Um, but I will leave it there, and thank you very much for indulging me. Thank you very much, Angie. So, uh, ever, ever since I was a teenager, I felt ugly. I don't know if it was because of the things that happened at home uh, in my childhood where, you know, my stepdad hit me and my mum sort of uh, said various different cliches that also hurt, you know, like you've ruined Christmas or I wish I'd never had you or uh, men are to blame for everything in the world, particularly you and uh, yeah big stuff that made me feel like bad about myself there or if it was what happened to me at school which uh when I was 12 I changed schools and went to Cardiff I was a an English boy in Cardiff with a difficult home life and so I was picked on and uh, I became a kind of bullied person within the whole school like uh, they had a nickname for me which was Melvin and everywhere I went down the corridors it would be Melvin Melvin uh you know people spitting on me kicking me uh calling me Melvin everywhere I went girls saying Melvin so ugly boys saying you're gay uh Melvin and uh, kind of Melvin became almost synonymous with gay and ugly uh when when I heard that word that's how I felt about myself um it was pretty intense I mean I guess the most intense moment uh, as an idea it was when uh, I threatened to slit my own wrists in the art class because I was so upset by everything that everyone was saying and the entire art class cheered me on uh, making it a bit awkward for me because obviously it was a cry for help and I didn't actually want to do it so I kind of had to back out in public <laughs> awkward so yeah I feel ugly about myself that's how I felt all through my teenage years. I mean, I did have girlfriends, but that didn't take away the ugliness I felt about myself. And then I went to university. I met my partner and we fell in love, had a lovely relationship, and, you know, with ups and downs like any relationship for 11 years. And uh, then uh, 11 years into that relationship, we decided to open up our relationship so that we could uh, sleep with other people uh, in an ethical way, everybody knowing that's what we did. So we opened up our relationship and that's a, a, a cool thing to open up your relationship, but also opening up the relationship for me was like opening up this Pandora's box of everything I felt when I was a teenager about feeling ugly because now I've got to face rejection again. So... Uh, that's what happened and you know my partner could find uh, people to sleep with when she wanted to and I uh, couldn't because uh, I'm not it's not such a great opportunity for women uh, in some ways uh, they might want uh, casual sex but uh, it's easier to hook up with someone who isn't already in a relationship and so it's hard for me to sort of like find people going through okay Cupid just brought back that re rejection feeling uh, that I just alluded to so um, I decided to go to a uh, swingers club uh, a sex club to to because I figured that the women there would be down for casual sex and I was down for casual sex and that's that's what I decided to do. So I looked up online, found a place, set off to go to the swingers club. Uh, 
and uh, you know on the way there there was a misconnection and I sort of like uh, was racing to get the train and I jumped on the train in, uh, in King's Cross and I got on the train and I was sweating and I was like this does not feel sexy I feel I'm sweating I'm, uh, I'm feeling ugly uh, I don't really know if I, the place is open from like 11 till 5 in the morning and I haven't got a way home so uh, I have to stay the whole time really uh, so um, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of taking a risk here and uh, but then I sort of look over on the train and there's a woman on the other side of the train I start thinking mm, well maybe she's going to this sex club so uh, that could work out quite well so that kind of made my, my feelings like slightly a bit more like positive in that moment and then so I get to Alexandra Palace uh, where the, the club is and uh, go down a back alley and there's lots of uh, CCTV in that back alley uh, reasonably to protect the club and uh, the people inside it uh, but it's a slightly scary thing to go down a back alley uh, to a place that you've never sort of been before and sort of knock on a big metal door and an old man uh, looks out at you and says have you got your reference number and you go uh, I've got my ID but I haven't got my reference number and he's like well you look like an honest guy to me so you can come in uh, so I went into the sex club and uh, it was a sex club so uh, uh, I meet the, uh, the concierge who is, uh, well, she feels German to me, but I think she was Polish. Uh, she kind of had a, had, a, had a, she kind of, she was dressed like a kind of cross between a dominatrix and a blue coat. Um, and, uh, and, you know, the people who run the sex club, uh, who were like a kind of a couple that were kind of a mix between EastEnders and Carry On, I guess. Uh, is, is, and uh, so I meet those people and the, 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 the waitresses who are behind the bar, uh, who, you know, are dressed in uh, bikinis and stuff. So I already I'm, I'm definitely in a sex club. And uh, so the concierge, she, uh, she shakes my hand and, and uh, I, sh- I shake it back and she says, you haven't got a very firm handshake. And I'm like, okay. Uh, nice to meet you too. I actually think that my handshake is a perfectly reasonable amount of firmness. Uh, that's the firmness I'm comfortable with, actually. And I don't really see any reason why this is an issue. She says, oh, well, okay. And then she takes me around the sex club. Uh, at this moment, there's nobody else in the sex club apart from the staff and me. Which uh, is a slight, a strange experience. So she, she sort of takes me around it, and it's kind of like a lot of different porn sets, but with nobody in them and worse lighting. Uh, and so, you know, there's a glory hole section, there's a few bed sections, there's all sorts of bits of the, of the club like that. There's a bit for people who are in couples to just go and be watched but not have anyone engage in the sex with them. And around all of each of the different sort of porn sets, there is a white line, and that's a very sensible white line uh, because that li- white line is about consent. You can't cross over into the sex that's happening unless all of the people in having that sex... Uh, say you can so you have to stay on the outside of that white line and when she's telling me this she's looking at me like you're definitely going to be on the outside of this white line (laughs) and uh you know, she's sort of like, she's very, very, people keep saying the word virgin as if I'm actually a virgin rather than this is just my first time at a sex club. Um, so it's so kind of getting humiliating and there's no other people. Uh, then some people start arriving, uh, men, uh, lots of other men uh, start arriving. And there's one man who, his, it's his first time too, so uh, the, the staff direct us to talk together and we talk about it and we're like, oh, we're probably not going to be uh, having any sex tonight. It's statistically very unlikely. We're going we're gonna to be reasonable about it we both feel awkward we had a kind of nice conversation and I realized that the good thing is I do feel calm because I can have conversations with people and we're allowed to talk about sex because this is a sex club so I'm comfortable with that but um, still there's no women and uh, so that's a bit awkward 
And then women start coming, but they're in couples. Uh, so uh, they're, 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 that, that's, that's how it is, right? In the, in the kink community, I believe, and in the sex community, uh, there's just a lot more men who want sex uh, going to those places, it seems, than, than women, uh, which kind of reminded me of my uh, experiences on OkCupid. Okay uh, so... <laughs> Uh, so then finally, like a woman who is single comes to the club. She kind of, she looked like Miss Piggy. But when I say that, I mean in absolutely the best possible way. Because <laughs> Miss Piggy is fucking hot. And I refute anybody who says anything different. So... That is how she, she, that's kind of how she looked. She had, a, a, she had blonde hair and, uh, and glasses, so that was different from Miss Piggy, the glasses bit. Um, but yeah, and we got into a conversation and uh, she said, uh, so what kink brings you here? And I thought, um, not, not really any kink, because I'm kind of pretty vanilla. I just kind of want to have sex with somebody. Um, yeah, that's what's brought me here. I've opened up my relationship and I explained that to her. And she's like, okay, well, that's fine. And we got, we got into that a big conversation really like she said the first time she'd had had sex was uh, in a group sex situation and uh, she was American and she was 25 because that's something that happens to you in a sex club you ask each other's ages a lot like in, in you don't do that in normal conversation when you meet someone new but you ask people's ages in a sex club because you know for obvious reasons so uh, yeah so I mean so we get talking and she said to she, we sort of get into I, I didn't really agree with her take on feminism but I did appreciate it and what she said was uh, what she's and I know that's an t- awkward thing for a man to say but I think you'll see what I mean in a minute she said uh, she thinks that basically men have it worse than women generally uh, because she can take the periods, the childbirth and the unequal pay if she can get free drinks and shag anyone she likes <laughs> yeah well I mean Fair enough. That's her. That's her take on it. I, I, I see it a little bit differently, but at the same time, that's a cool way of thinking, and I did. I did. I did relate relate to that. You know. Um, so so we get talking, and, and she's sort of like she's not suggesting that we're going to get together. It's just a conversation. And a guy called Dave arrives. I'm also called Dave. So there's two Daves and one girl talking here. Uh, two Daves, one cup. Uh, is what I want to say, but it doesn't really make any sense. But. Uh, so yeah, and he's he's uh, 37 and he's uh, Jewish and he's, he'd driven there, so he uh, he was he wasn't going to drink and he was a really nice guy. He didn't like football. We really related to each other there, and we started talking about how rubbish football is, which is my opinion, and I, I respect your opinions. Um, but uh, so uh, so yeah, and, and and that's what started to happen. They hooked up before and they had a kind of pre-existing relationship, and so I sort of thought, all oh, right, I see how this is going to go. You know, they're going to hook up, and and I'm not going to hook up with them, but that's okay. You know, this is a new experience and you know I wasn't expecting anything to happen um, but people keep arriving and there's more and more men but more and more people as well but nobody's having sex and then just suddenly all of a sudden like a sixth sense almost comes across me Teddy her name was and uh, Dave and we just sort of stand up go off to one of the porn like sets and uh, start having a threesome uh, mostly directed by her, which was cool with me uh, and a lot of fun. And I was kind of like really, really relaxed. And like I'm, I was thinking, I'm having sex with a woman and another guy, and I'm not gay, but I don't uh, find this uncomfortable. Um, I don't find it uncomfortable to look at him having sex with her at all. I'm pretty into it. And uh, I was, we were having sex, all three of us together, you know, so I guess I can kind of say I'm not 100% straight, which is what the kids at school thought. Uh, so we, we had a, a, a good time. Uh, there, and it was a sort of strange, 
sort of moment because you know we're having sex and it's good sex but there's lots of men in a big circle around us on the other side of the line wanking um so that's a kind of strange experience and you know all of my feelings about my body and the way I look like I feel like properly disgusted by my own body but in that moment I didn't you know and there's all of these guys wanking over my body I guess I should have (laughs) felt disgusted but for some reason that was pretty validating even though I'm sure they were probably looking at her more than me um so you know that's how that went down and then what it did is it sort of started the whole club up you know because the first time someone has sex that's like what everyone's waiting for and so like everybody it kind of felt like wow we're like we're like djs like bringing the bringing up the sexual atmosphere in this club um and uh you know so then we sort of uh, went out for a cigarette after that and they had had cigarette and the, the guy that was also waiting with me at the beginning he wasn't so chummy with me anymore he was much more bitter and kind of i'm a nice guy um, which was a little bit kind of weird for me because I've never been the man that someone else, another man is jealous of, you know? So it was kind of validating, but made me feel guilty for being validated by it, you know what I mean? Um, but yeah, that, so then we went back into the club and then the, the, the next thing I know, you know, we, there's like a dance floor bit with a pole in the middle and it's not really a place where people have sex and it's sort of like tables where people are sitting in couples and talking. Um, but the next thing I know, I'm on the floor in the middle of the dance floor, Teddy's got a back against the pole and I'm going down on her and the whole room is like looking at me like doing this and like nobody's saying anything, they're just looking at me doing this and I just get really into going down on her because it was really good fun. Um, and... You know, I, you, know, I, you know, I can't really see what's going on. And I sort of, like, get really into it. And she comes, like, amazingly. And like, this was quite pr- pretty cool as well, because she said to me, I don't normally come in group sex situations apart from that time when I, there were six guys. Uh, so I, I felt pretty good about this moment of, like, validation. Of, like, this whole room is looking at me getting this person off, and, like, they're getting off on this. And I, I don't know what's happened to me. I am amazing. Um, <laughs> And, you know, that was, that was amazing. Uh, that was the big moment for me. The moment of validation was that moment. Um, but, you know, we did have sort of a lot more sex after that and a lot of other people got involved in it. And I was cool with that too. Um, but that was basically how it went down. And then, like, I, at five in the morning, you know, we're all sort of talking and it's kind of calm and, you know, we're eating. Uh, they had uh, Swedish meatballs, which were excellent. In the, I, have to, I have to say, it did taste great. Um, and like Adele's playing on the music and we're all kind of like calm. And, you know, Dave is going to give uh, Teddy a lift back to the, his place because they're going to carry on having sex afterwards, I think. Um, and he says, you know, why don't I give you a lift home? So we kind of go down and we, we get into his car. Uh, Teddy takes off her sort of polka dot uh, two-piece lingerie and puts on her night clothes, her pyjamas, which I thought was an excellent move by her. Uh, <laughs> As we got into the car, and uh, he, you know, he drives me back to Asda in Leighton, uh, where he dropped me. Uh, and he said, you know, mate, I've got this uh, chocolate cake here, you know. Uh, I got given it at work. I don't really want it. Do you want it? And Teddy grabbed it out of his hand and said, no, I want it, because she's that kind of girl. Uh, and ate, ate the cake. And he said, well, I, I've got these chocolates as well. You might as well have them. And I was like, well, I, don't really, I don't really need chocolates. I've had a very great night. And he was like, no, they're not for you. They're for your girlfriend. And I was like, that's really nice. That's a really beautiful moment. Like, this is, this is everything that I hope for about open relationships right here. And uh, so I took the chocolates, and they went back, you know, to watch uh, The Big Bang Theory. That's what they were going to watch. You know. And I walked back uh, from, from the Asda, feeling, you know, 
good about myself and actually like I wasn't a horribly ugly and terrible person. I mean, I did have a feeling at that moment that it, that sex clubs might be a little bit like gambling and I'd, I'd lucked out that time, um, but it, I might as easily be the guys wanking in the, in the darkness. Um, so I went back one other time and discovered I was right. I wasn't one of the guys wanking in the darkness. That is not really my scene. But I, uh, I did uh, realise that I had lucked out massively on my first time. So I've, I learned from this whole experience that maybe, you know, it's good to quit while you're ahead in the sex club. But I also... <laughs> Well, why are you giving head? Uh, but I also learned that, that I am not ugly, which I believed in that moment. I find it hard to believe in this moment, so it's hard to say. But I'm going to try and say it proudly, but it's not going to go that proudly, but let's see. <laughs> that I am not ugly. Thank you. This podcast has been produced by me and put together by me with sound production from Stephen Harvey with some interviews and some extra production from Bryony Hawkins with music at the beginning from Sam Wilkinson and playing us out with The Tragedy Is Over, George Brufton and The Reactionaries. Right.